Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director John Lee Hancock's new biopic, The Founder, which tells the true story of how McDonald's founder, Ray Kroc, a salesman from Illinois played by Michael Keaton, met Mac and Dick McDonald, who were running a burger operation in Southern California in the 1950s. Recognizing the franchise possibilities inherent in their speedy food preparation system, Kroc maneuvered himself into a position to buy them out and create a fast food empire. In addition to the founder, Mr. Hancock's credits include the feature films Saving Mr. Banks, The Rookie, The Alamo, and The Blind Side, as well as episodes of the television series L.A. Doctors and Falcone. After a recent screening of The Founder at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Hancock spoke with fellow director Jonathan Mostow about the joys and challenges of making the film, including the responsibility he felt to portray Ray Kroc fairly, the roles that the Kroc and McDonald families played during his research for the film, and his desire to let each scene have its own day in court during the editing process. Well, first of all, congratulations. Um, Thanks, Jonathan. I I swore off McDonald's like many, many years ago. This film actually made me want to go out and get... You know what, I hadn't had it in forever, and then doing the movie, and after it was like, yeah, I I confess, I've had it a few times, so. Yeah. Um, So, uh, I have so many questions, but I guess let me start with the obvious one, which is, how did the film come about? Um, It predated me, uh, the development of it, through Combine, Jeremy Renner, and Don Hanfield, and their company, and they brought it to Film Nation, and together they put the financing together to bring in Robert Siegel, who wrote the script, which was fantastic, and then it landed on my desk. And at first I thought, um, you know, I'd done kind of Walt Disney and Jimmy Morris and all these true life characters, and I didn't want to really get in a rut in that way. Um, So I thought, I'm not going to do that. I know know the story of McDonald's, but it was a well-regarded script, and so I picked it up and read it start to finish and was really quite taken with it because it was just it was just so different to me to to read a script where I was pulling really hard for someone and then by the end felt a little oily for having been complicit in his rise. Um, and, and and I've said it before, I was like it struck me the first thing that I thought of it's like it's death of a salesman with a very different ending. Willie Loman doesn't commit suicide, he takes over the world. Um well it's interesting that um you mentioned your last picture because there's sort of a commonality in that they're both historical, iconic business stories. Um, I had always heard that actually Ray Kroc and Walt Disney knew each other, and uh, I believe like they trained together in World War One or something. I, I, th- I believe they both signed up early, underage, and were in the same general ambulance corps or something like that. Yeah, that's, that's pretty amazing. Um, I guess I have to ask if, if you could meet one of them, which one would you want to have dinner with? Oh, I, I think Walt Disney. I'd, I'd probably, you know, 
but I mean, but I find I found Ray Kroc really fascinating. The more I found out about him, because he was always confounding to me just a little bit, because there's so much about him I admired. But the same with Walt Disney. It's like guys who came from kind of nothing. These aren't people that brought a lot of money with them and and went from the you know picked themselves up by their bootstraps, etc. But um, but yeah, I'd probably have more questions for Walt Disney. I suspect. Um, it's interesting because this is a guy who's sort of you get the sense kind of scraping along the bottom through middle age and then suddenly has this meteoric rise. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you think about in 1954, it's very different than it is today, thankfully, um, because if you were in your 50s, you better have already made it. Um, you weren't going to grab the brass ring after that. You were supposed to be thinking about retirement in a, in a big way. Um, and so this was a guy in his 50s, in the 50s, um, who... He had, I mean, he, it was a very middle-class existence. I didn't mean to point out that he was scraping by. His best years had been behind him by about three or four years. But I think three years before, he had made $21,000, which in 1954 put you dead center, solid middle class um, and, and was a hard-working guy. Uh, but I think sales had tailed off a little bit, and there was a little bit of uh, desperation about him. Um, so let's talk a little about the process. Uh, you're... A director, you also are a writer-director. Um, can you talk a little bit about the difference in the experience for you when you're wearing both hats versus what? Sure. I think I think I had a real. I was kind of fortunate that the, the first movie I directed, first real movie I directed, um, was The Rookie that I didn't write, and so I was forced to take on the job of a director specifically, if you will, and and wear that hat and to interpret the script and to really really dig into the script. And I found that that served me later, even when I'd written it, because written the script, because I had to do the same job. I had to interpret the script. Because when I'm writing the script, I'm really not thinking about, oh, and here's this shot and this shot and this shot, even if I'm considering perhaps hopefully directing it. I'm trying to just tell the story on the page. So I think the interpretation of Mike's script helped me a lot when I wrote scripts, whether it was the Alamo or the Blind Side or whatever, so that I could, you know, at any point in time, turn and say, who wrote this shit? You know, and, and then and try to figure it out and fix it. Um, is there a different kind of satisfaction when you watch a film that you've directed versus one that you've also written? Wow. Um, you know what? I think you're probably doubly critical because, <laughs> you know, when you've just directed it, you go, oh, boy, I could have I could have done that a little bit better. And then if you've written it as well, you go, that line's kind of clunky. Why didn't I fix that? So maybe it's just twice as worse. I don't know. Um, so talking about process, uh, you get the film... Um, shot and at some point either you you saw you know the first cut that was put together or maybe after your director's cut D did the film evolve in the post-production process and how so in some ways I mean a film always kind of evolves I mean I I tend to everybody's different in their process for me I want every person involved with it to be interpreting the script or what came before them and so my job is to interpret the script the actors are interpreting the script we're all working together toward hopefully the same goal and we talk about that a lot um, but when I talk about editorial I have many discussions with the editor and it was Rob Fraser it was our first time to work together as well so it's it's interesting you're feeling each other out but I want him to interpret the footage um, and that's not to say that during production he won't send me sequences three or four scenes or whatever then I can give general notes, but I really want to the assemblage to be kind of what he sees in the footage, and then we can start from there. Um, and, and I also don't like for him to take any scenes out 
because I want every every scene to have its day in court and look at them on the wall. And then you you generally feel pretty quickly, and I know you know this, it's like you go, this is feeling fat in here, what can we do to thin this out? How can we get from A to B a little bit faster here? Those kind of things. But we, we finished in, in pretty good order with the director's cut and, um, and we're ready to, to show it to the producers, show it to them, got good notes back, and then you know screened it for friends and family, got good notes back. And then, it, so it evolved in that way. But then once it, was, once it was locked, it really didn't change. We went back and did one day of additional photography, which was just more than anything in looking at it. The film worked really, really well, but there were like two little kind of bridges that I wanted, almost emotional bridges that just to keep, to keep it alive. And so we went back and shot one day in Atlanta. Um, I always find that that in post films always have those one or two or three scenes that you spend a disproportionate amount of time cutting. You just keep going back to it and back to it. What, what, did you have that experience in this film and what were those scenes? I, I did. And, it, but the, the, and the thing is a lot of times you recut those scenes and you're thinking, I don't want to cut on this anymore. I'm tired of it. But this was one that I just loved so much that we had more fun. And every day it just got a little bit better, a little bit better in increments. And sometimes just frame cuts or let's flip these two shots. And, and that's the, the McDonald's brothers origin story about them coming from the East Coast and all that. And there was just something about that that was so kind of Americana. And I, and I loved all the images. And it's a very, I mean, it's a very long scene with just them sitting in a in a in a diner having a, a steak or whatever and it really the script didn't have many of the cutaways built in but I kind of felt like that I wanted to pull everybody in and I wanted it to almost feel like you were watching one of those history channel things where people are talking about stuff and you're seeing images from the past and you know and and, and stuff that actually did happen and all of it was true but uh, you know all the way down to the tennis court and the, cutting that and everything it was just a blast to do and it's a long sequence and I knew that it was it was one of those things that a lot of people would go it's too early in the film to stop the film and spend this much time on it, but I just dearly loved it, so I did anyway. Um, and, and it was essential because you really had to understand what this machine was. That, that was. I wanted, I wanted people to vest in McDonald's in their hard work. Yeah. Um, the uh, uh, sorry, the question just just uh, flew out of my head. Um, in the oh, I, I know what it was. So in casting Michael Keaton for this role and the role. So you're, you've got a historical movie that's fairly recent history. So um, I'm assuming there's a lot of descendants of the family that, that are you know, still quite present. So how do you deal with that when you're making a film that's not a completely flattering portrait of a guy who I'm assuming you had some contact with the family. It's 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 an interesting one because there really aren't many. I mean, Joan Crock from her marriage to Raleigh, played played by Patrick Wilson, uh, has a daughter that I've only in the last three weeks heard is, is still alive. Um, I think Ray and Ethel's daughter is deceased. Ethel died. Uh, I don't know any of the details of her death, and it's been hard to find out. But she died, I think, three years after their divorce. Um, Ray, of course, is dead. Joan is dead. Um, Dick McDonald. Um, Dick married after this, after this part of the history of McDonald's, and um, had a, uh, a stepson and then a grandson. And so his grandson, Dick's grandson, came to visit us and was helpful in terms of a lot of the McDonald's family lore and what they talked about from generation to generation. But I would say Rob Siegel took most of the information from a variety of books, including Ray's own book, Grinding It Out. Um, and there's a ton of stuff, whether it's 
you know, Ray giving a commencement speech at Dartmouth or whatever. There's, there's tons of that from a behavior standpoint and, and attitude. And I, and I, and I felt like some of the most damning stuff, especially in terms of dialogue, um, are actual Ray quotes, which was good. I mean, whether it's if my, you know, if my, uh, competition is drowning, I stick a hose in his throat. That's an actual quote. Wow. So, wow. um, a lot of actors will want to inevitably find themselves protecting their character in a sense. So, how did you and Michael deal with that? Did that ever become an issue? We talked about it right up front that we both wanted to be because I I, I do think there's a responsibility whether someone is uh, alive or deceased when you're portraying them to be to be fair. Now you also have responsibility to drama and conflict and those kind of things. But um, um, and you know anytime you've got a true story, you're going to be you know these things happened over a three-year period and we're all putting them all in one scene. Well, And I'm okay with that. They, these actually happened. So I think it's a pretty fair portrayal. But Michael and I right at the start, he's, the first thing he said to me, he says, if you're looking somebody, for somebody to candy coat Ray Kroc, I'm not your guy. He goes, I'm not reading that in the script. And I go, and I don't want to do that either. Um, but I said, I do want to be fair to him in the things I admire about him. And he said, and he said, boy, there's a lot I admire about him. There's a lot I don't like. But there's a lot I admire. He said he's an immigrant family, a guy who didn't, you know, his dad didn't give him any money, the hardest working guy. Uh, and he goes, I, I, I have to admire that. I think, those, I mean, I can't speak from, for actors because I'm certainly not one and certainly not, a, a, you know, someone of Michael's caliber. But I think grabbing onto the things that you think or traits you share probably helps you in, in portraying that because we, we didn't want to have a mustache twirling guy and we didn't want to sugarcoat Ray Kroc either. We wanted him to be complicated and confounding. And the, 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 you know, we, it, it didn't, it didn't bother us at all if, if people came out of the theater and some people said, I hate his guts. And some other people said, Hey, you got to do what you got to do in business. So what for you was <clears throat> one of the big, or several of the big challenges creatively? Well, I think probably the first and foremost from a production standpoint, the biggest challenge was we had a, you know, a limited budget. Um, it is a period adult drama and, you know, and so you, you have to make it at a certain price point. And we, we had to build two complete McDonald's, the Octagon in San Bernardino and the Golden Arches that we doubled, tripled, quadrupled, as you saw in the movie. Um, but we had to build them from the ground up and they had to be not only sets, but working kitchens. And so the cost that goes into that was only, um, made worse when you're shooting outside of Atlanta and you go, no, we're going to tear this down as soon as we finish shooting. And they said, as far as we're concerned, you're building a restaurant. This is what, this is the amount of steel that has to go in. This is the permitting involved. So it was like another $150,000 worth of steel that went into the buildings that we weren't accounting for up front. So I say just that, you know, there was that. Um, you know, and we shot it in 34 days. And so you were shooting, you know, four or five, six scenes a day and, um, and working, working really hard. And so, you know, just the usual. I mean, it's the usual stuff. I'm, I'm not going to sit up here and gripe. I had the, I have the best job in the world. But it, it's a challenge. And we, you know, I think rose to the occasion and finished our day with smiles on our faces and excited to go to work the next day. What, what about, I'm curious, what about the McDonald's Corporation? What, what was the interface with them? My first any? question when I went in uh, over at Film Nation's offices and was uh, talking about them about, uh, you know, perhaps directing the movie was, uh, I said, can we do this? And uh, they said, yes, we can. And it comes under the concept of fair use. And I'm not, um, I used to be a lawyer. That was a long, long time ago. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't venture anything. But uh, my layperson, you know, 
definition of that, I suppose, would be that if you're creating something historical in terms of art, uh, and it is well-branded and well-known, then you can do that and, and personify that with iconography or branding or whatever, as long as you do it ex as exactly as possible, which comes all the way down to the hats that are worn, the cups that we had to manufacture, they all had to be 1954 to 1959 in that realm. Uh, Michael Korenblith, our you know, great production designer, carried a lot of the heavy lifting for, from a production standpoint, and Daniel Landy with the costumes having to get everything precise. So that gave us the exemption of fair use to, to follow under. Now, the other thing about fair use is that when you're selling the movie, you have to be very careful because that's different. Selling the movie doesn't come under fair use, so you couldn't put the big brand of McDonald's, which is why in the poster you see part of the M, and we fill in the gap with our brains because it's so well known. Did McDonald's at any point try to court you? No. Um, they. I think at some point somebody got their hands on the script and sent it to McDonald's to get a response, and this was when we were in prep. And uh, the response came back, and, and this is not exactly what they said, I'll paraphrase, um, but they said, um, Ray Kroc was a fascinating man. It doesn't surprise us in the least that someone would make a movie about his life. That's it. Um, Smart liars. Yeah. I didn't realize you were a lawyer. What kind of law did you practice? A general civil practice. I, was a, I wasn't a good lawyer. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, was there a moment in the, any of the process where you said, I, I've got it. I, I, like there's a scene or a moment that for you just nails what the film is? Um, I, th I felt like that if we didn't kind of get the desperation of Ray Kroc up front that the movie wouldn't work. And that's part of the beauty of you get a Michael Keaton and there's something about him that is so likable and he also has a forward lean to him. Mm -hmm. And there's a, he's, he's good at playing salesman. He wants to sell you on his idea, whether he's talking about a script or whatever. There's something vital about that. And that very, you know, the, the, when we shot the scene at the very, I knew I was going to bookend with him looking right into camera because I wanted the audience to kind of be the only other person that knew exactly what was going on in his brain. And it's set up, of course, with a sales pitch that he does. And when he did that, and you know he said it, he said that same sales pitch a thousand times. And that smile and everything he does, it was just, you go, oh, but he's desperate. And there was that sadness about it and that, that really, I think, sets up his character right at the start of the movie. And then at the end, when he cracks a bit, we're the only ones that see it. Nobody else sees it. But, mm. you know, it, I, that, was, that was the interesting thing to me. Mm. That For me, that, that the, which I, apparently is a real quote about the hose with the rat, is just it's kind of an amazing, amazing moment. Um, did you connect personally with any something in this movie that resonated for you? You know what I I think it's a very it's a it's a very American movie. Um, you know, and I've been accused of making very American movies, and I don't I don't um, pull back from that at all. Uh, but I think there is something to examine in terms of I think B J Novak kind of told me he said you know what's interesting to me about this movie. And this was when we were talking about it. I'd sent him the script. He said it's kind of two parts of capitalism um, to examine. The one is have the best idea, work the hardest, and you'll succeed. And the other toward the third act is, you know, get good um, investment bankers 
and get financiers. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily about the idea. I'll take the idea. I'll buy the idea. It's not about necessarily the hard work. Somebody else can do that. It's about financing it and having big vision. So that was interesting to me, kind of the ebb and flow of that. I'm curious, in, in the credits, it references that there was a dispute between the B.J. Novak character and Ray Kroc. Um, can you tell a little my, bit? My understanding, was? there's no, it's nothing exact. And Ray, to, it, you know, to his credit, when you read Grinding It Out, it would be, a, it would be easy for him to go into uh, each of these relationships and trash the other one. He kind of skims right by the tough stuff, which I, which I give him credit for. He didn't trash people when he could when he was on top. Um, he says something, I think, philosophically, they fell apart or whatever. What my understanding was that there came a point after they'd grown exponentially that Harry Sonneborn, from a financial standpoint, thought that they could, should sit for a while. Like, let's not grow right now. And Ray was like, grow, grow, grow. So they ended up battling about that a little bit. And Harry, you know, supposedly never ate McDonald's again after he left. So, Wow, that, that's, um, that's amazing. Um, you've managed to navigate this really interesting career where you're making dramas that have been extremely commercially successful and you're doing so in an environment where the studios are increasingly abandoning those kind of films and the audiences perhaps in, in many cases um so what what's the secret recipe i i don't have a secret recipe at all i mean i know how fortunate i am to because i love adult dramas and that's the world i live in those are the movies i really appreciate and they make very few of them so i'm very i'm i'm, I'm thankful that you know you've got companies like Film Nation that are that are making these movies because the studios have kind of in some ways abdicated that and given it over to cable television and and companies like Film Nation and and things like that. So I mean I'm just what's the old um, they asked the bank robber why why does he uh, rob banks? He's that's where the money is. It's like I just go where the stories are and if someone sends me a script as good as Rob Siegel's then I'm going this is an opportunity to tell a great story that I think I know how to tell. Um, other than that, I don't know. I don't have any secrets. I just, I mean, I'm, if I'm really into a story and I go, boy, this is going to fascinate me for two years, then that's saying a lot. Uh, you mentioned Film Nation. We got a, there's a room full of DGA members. We got to give a shout out to that company and, and, uh, producer of the film, Aaron Ryder. This is a spectacularly produced film. I mean, I, it, it and, astonishes and, me. And Aaron did this while television. he was, he was, uh, um, I was very angry with him some days because it's a, Ooh, where are you going, Aaron? He goes, I've, he had two movies. He was also producing Arrival at the same time. Amazing. Um, uh, what did you, what for you is the most enjoyable aspect of making the film? Wow, you know what? It's all, I think every part of it's kind of its own interesting part. I know that sounds like a cop-out but I, I love I love when you first come in. I mean, one there's the writing, which is you alone in the room if you're if you're the writer of the film. But let's say I'm not, and you get a script and you start in, and you know it's going to be a go picture, and you start that first day of prep, and you've got production offices, and the first day it's just you and the line producer, and there's a lot of empty offices, and then little by little more people start to come in, and I always have I try to go in every day, and I'm there all day with the door open. So people can come in, ask me questions. If I'm on the phone or I'm busy, I'll close the door. 
But if the door's open, just come on in and ask questions because it just helps you make them. You start to make the movie a long time before then. So I love prep. But then about the time you get sick and tired of prep and choosing which watch a character's going to wear, then you get to, you, I'm ready to shoot. And then you start shooting. And by the end of shooting, usually you're really excited because of the footage you've got and you want to get to the editing room. And then, you know, so it, it's one of those things where you're kind of, it goes like this and then you're weaned off of it. So at the end, it's just you and an editor in a dark room together. It's just like you started in a room by yourself writing. So I, 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 I don't know that I could pick one part of it. I, I'm, I'm blessed to be able to do it all so far. Uh, you seem like a mellow guy, so this is maybe not a fair question, but um, does anything keep you up at night in, in the process? Oh, gosh, yes. Every single night. I mean, so what is it? What 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 is causing? There's always just you're thinking about because you spend. I mean, I I do like to prep hard and work with my you know my DP and my production designer and try to try to think of every single possible thing that can go wrong. And you know you're well you you've thought of everything and you've planned it out well. But it's just always that you know you've prepped once again for the the next day. You've gone through all your notes and then you lie in bed and you go, what am I missing? What am I missing? What am I missing? And sometimes I will say that in that thought process with your head on the pillow. I'll go, oh, you know what? I know this. Sh I, there's one shot here that is kind of the, the touchstone for this scene that I hadn't thought of before. And so I'm now I'm going to use every, all the rest of that I thought of around that. I mean, it was something, it was something Clint Eastwood told me, you know, a long time ago. I had the uh, good fortune to write two movies that, that he directed and I was on the set all the time. So he was kind of my film school because I didn't go to film school. But he told me, he said, there's always one image in your head when you're looking at a scene. And he said, don't ever, he goes, make sure you get that one. He goes, there's always a million reasons not to shoot it because it might be something that's odd or we've already, we were thinking about turning around or we got to go to lunch now and then we're going to, if we can turn around, you know, whatever it is, he goes, make sure you get that one shot because it'll always be in the movie. When you start a movie, do you know what the very final moment is going to be or is that something you discover en route? Um, in, in, in this case, the script I got, um, from Rob, which I said was really good, ended uh, with uh, him handing his card to the LA Times writer and it saying founder on it. And and so Rob Siegel was his first draft. And so my only, in terms of you know us working together on the on the next draft of the script, my only thing was I said I think there's a promise made in the first act with him in that motel that we're going to see an inner life of Ray Kroc. And everything except for the motel is we're watching him just burn through the forest in a way. And it's really entertaining, I think. But I said, I think we've made a promise to the audience up front that we need to pay off. And so Rob and I started talking about how to do that. And he came up with the, the what I think is a great scene of him practicing a speech, which comes from the phonograph rec the, you know, the record that he plays, the self-help thing, which also he has taken as his own. He's really good at taking other stuff from other people. Um, but then it gives that great moment at the end, too. So they, oh, I knew when we had that, there was actually one additional little snippet of a scene that was in the limo outside that we, that we shot and was really great, but it was just a matter of where you wanted to end it. And I ended up going 51-49 with ending it with him leaving the room. My last question is, um, you know, Seems there's a lot of conversations happening in our industry about in some of this surprising new political dynamic that we're in, what kinds of stories people are going to be telling and what sort of stories audiences might have an appetite for. Um, do you have any thoughts about how this movie may be perceived or taken or have a, a meaning that might be different than uh, than what you 
perhaps intended when he started? Yeah, I, I think so. I've been asked the question enough now doing press. I mean, obviously, two years ago when I read the script, you know, um, for instance, Donald Trump was not running for president. So, you know, you, there's a different lens placed on the movie in terms of, you know, looking at your real life. I, don't, I forget who it, who it was that said it, that a, a period movie says more about the period in which it's made than the period it depicts. And I think that's kind of always the case. You look at it through the lens of today and what does this mean to me? And so, you know, there's a certain amount of relevance to, uh, a, you know, a take all, take no prisoners businessman who rises to the top. There's no doubt about it. Um, so, you know, I, that wasn't planned, but uh, I've certainly been asked about it a lot. Really interesting. Well, um, thank you for making this fantastic movie and um, for sharing uh, your thoughts tonight. Oh, well, thank you, John. Thank you guys for coming to the Late Late Show. Thanks for listening to this DGA Q&A. Check out past episodes of the podcast by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website at dga.org slash podcast. We'll have a lot more episodes coming your way over the next several weeks, so stay tuned. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Director's Cut on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.